Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. So reading this morning from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 through 12, the apostle writes, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I thank you for your word and your spirit that is here Uh, doing what only your word and spirit can do, changing and transforming lives and hearts as your word goes forth. And I ask you this morning that as your word goes forth, that it would glorify you, that it would lift you up, Lord, and that it would touch your people this morning in a transforming way. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex that we live in has a lot to offer people. I just spoke with a man this week who just this past week moved here from Southern California. He's from Southern California, the Los Angeles area, and he's been commenting to me uh, about the traffic and how good it is. Um, That's hard for us to believe can be one of the most frustrating things about living here. He said, but you don't understand what it's like in L.A. And I said, you're right. I've never been to Southern California. The economy is strong. There's a lot of good jobs. There's a lot of choices for restaurants and retail, a lot of things to do. Areas that we live in, good schools, fairly low crime. But what this area is not known for is being a beautiful area. I don't think anybody comes to North Texas and comments on the beauty of the area. There are no mountains. There are no beaches. For the most part, there are no rolling hills. There's this little section over in a rural part of Keller that I, every once in a while I'm over there, and they have some rolling hills. I think this is probably one of the prettiest places in the Metroplex, but it's very confined, and give it time, and there'll be houses on those hills. <clears throat> so anytime I go and visit someplace beautiful, one of the things I wonder is if the people who live there appreciate the beauty, or if they just simply get used to the beauty that's around them. <clears throat> Lake Tahoe the Oregon coast that we love to go to, Uh, being there on the coast and the beautiful ocean and the mountains right behind you. I've been there and wondered, do these people 
truly appreciate this. The Olympic National Park, even beaches in Florida, you see these houses that are on the ocean. And I think, do they appreciate what they have? If you live there, do you get up every day in awe or, as I suspect, it wears off? Because I know that going places like that after just a few days, I've ceased to be amazed like I was on day one. I suspect that after a while, the glory of what surrounds them ceases to amaze them. In our text this morning, Peter tells us that the Old Testament prophets wondered about the salvation that we experience and enjoy today in Christ. And the angels long to look currently into the good news of the gospel that we have. Prophets wonder and angels long to look into what we have. Do we appreciate this morning the wonder and glory of what we have? Do we stand in awe as we should at the glory that is in Christ? Or as I suspect, like the residents who live in the villages at the base of the Swiss Alps, it just after a while grows ordinary to us. Do we handle the things of God with care and respect and reverence? Or have we lost sight of the infinite glory that we step into every time we gather together or every time we say a prayer when we're alone or every time we open this holy book? Do we stand in awe? In Leviticus chapter 10, we read of the sons of Aaron and nephews of Moses. They were two brothers named Nadab and Abihu. They were called by God to serve God in the priesthood. They were called to handle the holy things of God. They had grown up in a preacher's home, and they had been all around the things of God their entire lives, and they lost the reverence they had for the holiness of God. These two brothers experienced God like few other people experienced Him in history. Most people read about Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10 where God kills them. But they show up in Exodus chapter 24. And hear the experience that these two brothers had. Then He said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord had spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel." And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood he threw against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance to these words. And then 
Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And they did not lay his, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and they ate, and they drank. They beheld God in this scene. Nadab and Abihu. They knew what it was to be in the presence of God. Very few people in history at that time knew what it was like to know God in that way. But in Leviticus chapter 10, the same two men, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire, King James will call it strange fire, before the Lord which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out before the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said, Among those who are near me I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. I don't think that we, and I include myself in that number, I don't think that we who are around the things of God and we who have been granted salvation in Jesus Christ and we who have been transformed by His Spirit, I don't think we always stand in proper awe and reverence for who God is and what it is that we have a hold of. Jesus said in Matthew 13, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see. So Peter is echoing what Jesus said previously, that the prophets and the men of old, the people of old, long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and they did not hear it. So Peter writes in verse 10 that we read this morning concerning this salvation. We all need to be saved. Every one of us needs salvation. If you're needing saved, it means you need saved from something. I was on the job one time and I had a boss who was Canadian and just the nicest man you would ever meet. Cordial, kind. I've never been in a workplace environment where I never heard a crossword about the man. Um, he built the place from scratch. He had the respect of everybody in that building, respected that man. He was a leader, and he had the people behind him. Always very cordial. Every once in a while, if, I mean, if he got a little terse, it got everybody's attention because he didn't get that way that often. And one day, I was sitting at my desk, and he walked in my office, and he said, get your keys and get out of here now. Get in your car and leave. Now, out the building now. And I realized he wasn't joking. And all of a sudden I heard him say to somebody else, called her name, get your keys, get out of here now, leave, go home, get out of the, on and on and on, yelling through the building, get out of here now. And the first thing I thought is how uncharacteristic this is of him for him to be this in your face. The second thing I realized was that um, uh, he was being a leader. There was an obvious danger that he did not want everybody to face. I didn't know what it was, but I knew that he was trying to save people. So I went out and got in my car and I sat there for a minute and some people congregated in the parking lot and he came out the front door yelling, I said, get out of here, get in your car, get out of the parking lot and leave. So as I suspected, I figured what it was and it was, 
Um, a man who had worked there previously had sent a text message threatening that he was on his way up there with a gun. Uh, and so uh, this man in charge was doing what he should do and getting everybody out of the building um, to protect them. We needed saving. I didn't know, sitting at my desk that day, that I needed to be saved from something. I thought I was safe, but someone knew something that I didn't know and used that knowledge to come save me. We all need salvation. We all need saved from something. We all were lost and needed not just salvation, we needed a Savior, and that's who Jesus is. A Savior to save me from my sin and from the eternal damnation that awaits me because I'm a sinner. I need saved from that. In Luke 19, when Zacchaeus comes to Jesus and repents and confesses his sin, Jesus says, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Now, if you notice here, because that, that last verse gets quoted often, Jesus came to seek and save those who are lost. The first part of that we don't quote as often where Jesus said, Today salvation has come to your house. Jesus was saying salvation isn't just a thing, it's a person, it's me. I am salvation. Salvation, me, has come to your house to save you. And it was this reality that Jesus is salvation that Peter was talking about when he said even the prophets who prophesied in the Old Testament about Jesus in their writings, they sought to understand more about what they wrote. The spiritual realities that we experience every day as Spirit-filled believers are greater than anything anyone in the Old Testament could ever know. In verse 10, Peter writes, The prophets searched and inquired carefully. Now verse 11 that we read this morning is a little hard to unpack in the ESV that we use. And the ESV is written in a way, uh, kind of a balance of literal interpretation and a way for people to understand it. But verse 11, it's not smooth. Uh, if you read verse 11 in the NIV, it's a little clear. And ironically enough, the NASB, which is probably the most literal translation that we have, which usually means it's the hardest to read, the translators of the NASB actually get this verse very clear. It's clearer in the NASB than it is in the ESV. So I, we need to unpack what verse 11 is saying and look at it closely. So what were the prophets trying to understand? Two things. Number one, the person. Number two, the time the person was to come. This is referring to the Messiah. So the prophets are trying to, they're seeking to understand who the person will be and the time the person was going to come. How did the prophets know that a time and person was coming? Peter says the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating to them. Now, don't miss this. this it, Peter calls the Spirit of Christ was in the prophets in the Old Testament. Before Christ was made incarnate in human flesh, the Spirit of Christ was in the prophets, moving them to produce God-breathed words captured with pen and paper or with quill and scroll, 
They're writing it down hundreds of years before Jesus comes. And it's the Spirit of Christ in the prophet that prophesies in the future the person of Christ. So the Spirit of Christ prophesies the person of Christ. This is not the only time Peter talks about how Scripture comes into being. Later on in this same chapter, and we'll get there in future weeks, Peter says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, just a few words before, he calls it the Spirit of Christ. A few words later, he says those same prophets moved by the Holy Spirit. It's not two spirits. It's two different ways of speaking to one reality. The Holy Spirit being the Spirit of Christ. And of course we see in the New Testament that the, the Holy Spirit proceeds from Jesus. So we see that the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Christ are one and the same. So look at the last part of verse 11 because this is the hardest part to discern in the ESV. Very important that we understand who the He is when it says, when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Who is the He? The natural reading, the way the ESV has it worded, Peter's talking about prophets, many prophets, it almost could sound like He was referring to one prophet. The He is a prophet. It's not. It does not refer to the prophet. The He refers rather to the Spirit of Christ and the prophet. When I say that it's easier to read in the NASB, that He is capitalized, indicating that it's God. The ESV doesn't capitalize these pronouns used to refer to God, so it's a little harder to understand. In the original language, it's very clear how that's structured, but it's a little hard for us to get in the English. So that's why I say we, we don't want to miss this. We want to slow down and see this, because when we read, when He predicted the sufferings of Christ, the He is referring back to the Spirit of Christ and the prophet. So if the Spirit of Christ predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow His suffering. So we see here that the He... It's referring to the Holy Spirit as He. It's personifying the Holy Spirit as a person, the Spirit of Christ. He refers back to the Spirit of Christ. So it's making, that, it's making Him a person. It's so important to understand because I think too often we make the Holy Spirit, we refer to it as an it or a thing. It's not. It's God. The Spirit of Christ, He predicted the sufferings of Christ. It is the person. It is God Himself, fully God, within the prophets predicting the suffering of Christ. So what Old Testament prophet do we think of usually when we think of a prophet in the Old Testament who predicted the future sufferings of Christ? Most of us will think of Isaiah. Because Isaiah has... This figure in Isaiah that we call the suffering servant. I've preached on this quite a bit in the past. These different songs in the book of Isaiah with this central figure called the suffering servant. Most prominent is in Isaiah 53. Very familiar passage of scripture. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. This is referring to, the, this is the suffering servant, it's predicting Christ. So hear how Isaiah talks about Jesus. He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him, and no beauty that we should desire Him. 
He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. On and on and on. It's describing this suffering servant. Down to verse 10. Yet it, will, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. It's describing Jesus. Now, I want you to see in 1 Peter, Peter talks about the prophets predicting the sufferings of Christ. And then just a few verses later in chapter 2, and we'll get there in the coming weeks as well, this is what Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 2. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. Want to be like Jesus? Learn to suffer. He, was com he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. What is Peter doing? He's quoting Isaiah. So first he says the prophets predicted the sufferings of Christ. Now he's quoting the prophets predicting the suffering of Christ. He was reviled. He did not revile in turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Christ suffered for you so that you might follow in his footsteps. Had a conversation recently with someone who told me I knew nothing about their background and what they believed about God and their theology and was talking to them and, and they indicated, uh, they said, oh, well, Tim Keller is our, our favorite guy to read and listen to. He listened to this podcast and I said, well, you're on solid ground there. I said, I have a lot of respect for Keller and what he did uh, before he passed away. And then they started to tell me how they have a background in the um, Word of Faith charismatic movement. Um, and I said, well, I said, if you ever do visit with us, I said, you'll hear me speak pretty vocally out against that particular movement. Uh, and they were naming some of the churches and places they attended. And um, I began to listen to them, how they, they were able to reconcile and see in Scripture um, how that they realized that coming to Jesus didn't automatically mean you were going to get wealthy and rich and everything in life was going to go really well, which is what those churches just teach ad nauseum. It's very money-driven. And um, I thought about them when I read this Scripture. These parts are not talked about at all in those churches. Christ suffered for you, and He did it. He left you an example so that you might follow in His steps. If you're suffering in life, you're following in the steps of Jesus as an example. I, I hope you see and feel what is happening in Peter when he writes about the realities of the prophets predicting the suffering of Christ. And then Peter engages the suffering servant in Isaiah and he makes it personal for us. And then he says, before it was all about 
prophets in the past and Jesus, and now he personifies it. He makes it about us, and he says, you. Now he's making it personal. You were straying like sheep, and now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Christ suffered. Are there any two words that exist in the human language that make less sense together than the words Christ suffered? Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the God-man who walked among us and should have been revered and honored and worshipped and instead suffered at the hands of men and died a brutal death. Christ suffered. And with the sufferings of Christ, Peter says, there came subsequent glories. Glories follow the suffering of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the glorification of Christ, the ascension of Christ, the people of Christ baptized with the Spirit of Christ and baptized in water, buried in Christ, buried with Him in baptism. The glories that suffered, that followed the suffering of Christ. And any time I think about the glories that follow the suffering of Christ, I always think about Revelation 1 when John describes Jesus as He really is. No longer is He suffering. But John said in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around His chest, the hairs of His head white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and His voice was like the roar of many waters. And in His right hand He held seven stars, and from His mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and His face was like the sun shining in full strength. That's the glory of Christ as He really is. Verse 12. Peter said it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which the angels long to look. So prophets sought to understand what we have today and angels long to look, he's using present language, right now into what we have. Now, I know we don't talk a lot about angels. In fact, I don't know in the time that we've been together that I've ever talked about angels at much length. Um, I, I don't make a big deal about angels, but angels do exist. They are ministering spirits. There is a spiritual world of angels and demons that are active in the world today. Now, when Peter writes about angels, if I were to write about an angel, and I, I, I only know one person personally who I believe the story that they told that they actually had an encounter with an angel. Now, I've heard lots of people tell stories, but I'm talking about somebody that I knew very well personally who never talked about angels. Uh, but in private, he told me a story that happened to him as a young man. And he felt like it was an angel, and, and, and I felt in the story it was probably an angel. Um, <clears throat> but if I were to write about angels, I would write about other people's experiences. I would write about what I know about angels from Scripture. Now, Scripture does say, uh, be careful when you entertain strangers unaware, because it could be a ministering spirit, it could be an angel. 
And that's exactly what happened to this person I know. They were entertaining a stranger in their home. Um, but I've never had a personal experience where I can say I think that was an angel. But Peter did. If you know the story of Peter in Acts chapter 12, Peter is in prison. He's in jail for preaching the gospel. And an angel comes, and there is a midnight jailbreak that the angel comes and breaks him out of jail. And Peter, even later, he thinks it's a, it's a, a vision. He has to decide, did this really just happen? You know, and he goes to the door. There's a prayer meeting going on where people are praying for his escape, and he goes and knocks on the door. They're praying for Peter's freedom. And he knocks on the door, and the girl comes and looks out the people and said, hey, guys, it's Peter. And they said, no, it's not Peter. He's in jail. We're praying for his, we're praying for his escape. Uh, so finally they let him in the door, and shows how we, we pray for things that God gives us an answer. We're like, oh no, I can't be bothered with that. I've, I've got to pray for this. And God's saying, no, here it is. I'm trying to give it to you. This is exactly what happened. Peter has met an angel. An angel breaks him out of jail. He believes in them. He knows how God uses them. And Peter says, even the angels long to look into what we have. Wayne Grudem writes, angels who see ultimate reality from God's perspective, find them to be objects of intense in interest, for they know that these struggling believers, us, are actually the recipients of God's greatest blessings and honored participants in a great drama at the focal point of universal history. So angels, created beings, spiritual beings, they long to look into what we have. When Peter writes, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, he wasn't saying, back to the prophets, the prophets seeking, when he writes that they were serving not themselves but us, he wasn't saying that the prophets' words did not have value in their own time. The words of the Old Testament prophets did give hope to the people who heard them in Old Testament times. So we look at Hebrews 11. These all died in faith, talking about believers in the past, before Christ, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. What gave the people of God hope in the Old Testament was the reality for the people of God in the New Testament, including us. Speaking of the Old Testament system of, of worship, they serve, they, this is referring to the Old Testament, the sacrificial system, all of that. They serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant He mediates is better since it is enabled and enacted upon better promises. We have a better covenant and better promises in Christ. This is the better and the best is yet to come. So here what Paul writes to Timothy and 2 Timothy 2, chapter 10. He says, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, 
that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. So as we look at the words of the Apostle Peter this morning, it's a reminder today that there ought to be an appreciation, an awe. C.S. Lewis wrote about this. C.S. Lewis wrote about how it's part of the nature of man to become familiar with glories. And it's one thing if somebody who lives at the base of the Swiss Alps gets up every day. I imagine people who were born there, they don't have any other context. It's just, that's just what the world looks like. That's one thing if they get used to that. It's another thing if you move to a, um, another part of the world and, and you're in awe of the natural beauty and then after a while it wears off. And that's one thing. But it's another thing altogether entirely if we who have been entrusted with the promises and the covenant of Christ, who dwell in Christ and Christ dwells in us, it's another thing entirely if it becomes mundane and ordinary and we lose sight of the beauty of what we have a hold of. Once you know this, once you know the realities of Christ, there is no going back. There is no seeking anything better. I've spent my lifetime watching people walk away from God and seek something else in life because they, were, they lost their sight of the beauty of what they had and they believed a damnable lie from Satan that there was something better out there than what they had in Christ. When the truth of the matter is, there is nothing greater or more beautiful or more pleasurable than what is to be found in Jesus Christ. I don't talk about it all the time, but I've made mention before about this idea that I was introduced to probably 13, 14 years ago um, of Christian hedonism, an idea that transformed how I think about God. The idea that you cannot serve God out of duty. No one can love God out of duty. It's not possible. I don't, if it's, if it's Valentine's Day that we just had last week and you give a gift to a spouse or on a birthday or on Christmas, it's somebody you deeply love, but you know, you're just going to do what you do every day on, the, on those days and every day. I'm just going to do it because I had to. Here, honey. Happy birthday. Why'd you get that for me? You shouldn't have. Well, it's my duty. It's what I'm obligated to do. But people live for God that way. And I'm not saying there's nothing at all commendable about some things doing it because it's the right thing to do. But you can't live your entire relationship with God, who is love, in that manner, we wouldn't do it with people that we love. Say, well, I had to do it. There you go. I, 
kids used to say things like, hey, thanks for dinner or things like that. And I used to, my, my reply a hundred times, it's one of those dad sayings as well, the law says I have to feed you. And, and they know I'm saying it tongue in cheek. I'm doing it out of love because I want to do it. But how many people serve God just through a drudgery? It's like, well, it's my duty. No, it's more than a duty. It's a delight to exalt in the joy that is in Christ, to make Him the center of everything that is. If you are trying to live for God and overcome sin and evil out of willpower, you will lose. You will lose. That's an ancient heresy. There was an ancient heresy called Pelagianism that no one today would say, I believe in Pelagianism. Most people would say, I don't even know what that is. But it was the idea that technically, and this is a simplification, that you could save yourself. I could. Like, I have it in, like, if I just lived right, I have the ability. No, you don't have the ability to live above sin out of duty. If, if life has taught us anything, it's that willpower is a very poor tool, an instrument to live successful in any Roman life. I'm going to do this by sheer willpower. Now there's some people who have flipped a switch and lost a ton of weight. Some people have flipped a switch and, and did this through discipline. But you'll never please God in your walk with Him that way because this is a relationship. He abides in me and I abide in Him. So what do I do? Just like the spouse, the husband, the wife that does things out of love. Now, what happens when you give your spouse something beautiful, something great, and they just, they light up. It's like, wow, I wasn't expecting this. Thank you very much. What does it do to you? You get enjoyment out of it. It makes you happy. All of a sudden, wow, I'm, I, I have now received pleasure and happiness by giving them something. And they never look at the, the spouse and say, well, why are you getting so much satisfaction out of that? This was for me. It's like, no, they're happy. They're like, oh, I'm so glad that it made you happy that I'm happy. And it's just this back and forth. And that's how it works with God. God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in Him. When I heard that statement by John Piper 13, 14 years ago, it was the screensaver on my computer for years. Because I said, yes, God is most glorified in me. God gets the most glory in me when I get the most satisfaction in Him. When I find my satisfaction in Christ, not His gifts, not what He can give me, not my fringe benefits, but the person of Christ Himself. This is what makes heaven and eternal life so beautiful. It's not streets of gold, gates of pearl. It's not that we're going to live in eternity with no tears, pain, sorrow, sickness, death. None of that. Those are fringe benefits. The beauty and glory of eternity is that I get to exult in Christ forever. The Bible says that what we have today is the earnest of our inheritance. It's like a 1% down payment. Say, so here's the Holy Spirit. Here's a down payment. When you get to the other side, you're going to reap your eternal reward of all the realities of God. You couldn't handle all of God right now. It would kill every one of us if we had the full reality of the 
brightness of God's glory and holiness. We just get a little down payment of what that is right now. But in the age to come, we are going to know Him in His full reality as God, the Creator, the Savior, and God is love. Let's pray. Father, this morning, Your anointing has been here. Your Word has been sent forth. Uh, we know it doesn't return void, so we ask You this morning, Lord, uh, that You would touch us in a mighty way from this Word, not my words, but Your Word from Holy Scripture that has went forth. Lord, that it would find its place deep in our hearts, that this seed that would, has been sown would be sown into good ground, and that fruit will come from even just today, in days, weeks, and maybe even years from now, there would be fruit produced. My name will be long forgotten. No one will know where it came from, but a word and a seed that was planted will find harvest and fruit in that time to come. Lord, I pray today, keep your hand upon us. Order our steps according to your word, your way, and your divine purpose. We ask this this morning in the name that is above every name, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you this morning.